Well, it's good to see all of you this morning on this holiday weekend. Uh, You can notice there's a a vacancy down here in the first several rows uh, to my right and your left. Be remembering, please, to pray for the missions team, uh, part of which is uh, already in Hungary, and uh, the other part of which will be leaving uh, today at 1230 to go to Chicago. So please be praying for us and for this, this team and the work that God will do um, this coming week as we anticipate God's work through, uh, through these young, young people. What a joy. <clears throat> well, we're continuing our series in the book of Ruth. Uh, so if you would, please turn with me to Ruth. It's towards the beginning of the Old Testament. Joshua judges Ruth. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 222. Already as we've been moving through this story, I, I wonder if you have noticed some of the similarities this account of Ruth and uh, Naomi and Orpah and then Elimelech and his two sons, Malon and Kilion, how similar their story is to the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Have you, have you noticed some similarities? You remember the story of the prodigal in, in Luke 15 that Jesus tells and this man, this father, had two sons, an older and a younger son. And the younger son was getting a little frustrated, a little, uh, little eager, you might say, to, to get his inheritance and start living. I mean, really living. So he thought, Dad, I, why don't you give me my inheritance now so I can finally get on with my life and, and enjoy, enjoy this life while I'm young instead of, having wait, into, instead of having to wait till I'm old. So his dad gives him his inheritance. And if you remember the story, it says the prodigal had to move to a far country. He gathered all he had, it says, and he took a journey into a far country. We've come to understand a little bit what that means. In moving away from Israel was symbolic of moving away from the promises of God. Moving away from your heritage, moving away from your family, moving away from your friends, but more than anything, moving away from where God was where his presence was, where the, the spirit of God would work in the hearts of the people to draw them into him, to fellowship with him. This is where the temple was. This is where the sacrifices were. This is where the word of God was. And so by moving away from Israel was to move away from God. So this prodigal moves away. And what do we find? He, he squanders his money. It says, Jesus says, he spent everything he had in reckless living. And then he faced a real dilemma. What was he going to do? Now there was going to be a famine in the land that arose in that country. And as we have seen before, the, the famine that God brings <clears throat> excuse me, to a life, the difficulty and challenges that come are a direct result of God's punishing love. God's grace to us comes through judgment comes through discipline. That God will discipline those he loves. It's an evidence of his kindness to them. If this morning you would call yourself a follower of God and you have sinned against God and have faced some challenges and difficulties in your life, those challenges aren't meant to destroy you. Those challenges in your life are meant to draw you in. It is a grace of God to bring discipline into your life. So this prodigal experiences some discipline. 
He has no money. He has no family. He has no recourse. So if you remember the story, you know what he does next. He, he finds any way that he can to make a living. So he hires himself out as a slave, as a servant, and he works as a pig farmer slopping the pigs. This was the furthest you could go as a Jew. It wasn't, if it wasn't bad enough to move away from Israel, to move away from the presence of God, and then to now experience the backlash of bad decisions, now he's made the ultimate decision. He's gone to the, to the edge, and he has abandoned all semblance of dignity and has now uh, positioned himself to slop the pigs, forbidden in Jewish culture. And then this is where the change begins to happen. As Jesus describes, it says, the, 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 the suddenness of the story now change, changes. Jesus says, when he came to himself. In this moment, a flash of hope and recollection comes to his heart. He begins to understand what all of the challenges that he's experienced, what they mean, what they're for. And he begins to turn his sights on hope that would come to a father. There's only one thing for him to do. It says he cast himself on the mercy of his father. Jesus describes the thoughts that were going through this prodigal's head when he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What does he do? He arises and he returns. Those words should sound very familiar to you. This is precisely what Naomi does. She comes essentially to the end of herself. She comes to a point of recognizing that she is desperate that the difficulties that God has brought on her life are a result of the sin of her family, that God's punishment has brought her to a place of reflection, a place of understanding and clarity. And so she arises and she returns back to Judah. Now we pick up the story in Ruth chapter 1, verse 19. Follow along with me as I read uh, this verse and and we begin to, to see in this passage that Naomi is positioning her heart in demonstrating a level of confidence in God. Those things that the prodigal needed to overcome in order to make his way back to his father were the same things that Naomi needed to work through in order to make her way back to Bethlehem. This morning, regardless of where you are, there is a way home. There is a way home that comes as we begin to understand the character of God and anchor our hearts in who he is. Verse 19 says this. Speaking of Ruth and Naomi, it says, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Of course, we understand that Naomi and Ruth received some good news. We, we saw that in chapter 1, verse 6. This, this good news that came to them while they were in the fields of Moab. That things were beginning to shift. Uh, circumstances were, were beginning to change in Judah. The fields of Judah were beginning to, to produce crops. She gets this news 
of this change of circumstances, and she instinctively makes a decision to return. Along the way, as she's traveling with Ruth and Orpah, she comes to a place of recognizing that life is going to be very difficult for her, her daughters-in-law. So out of compassion for them and concern for their welfare, she sends them back. She asks them to go back to Moab. And she prays a prayer for them that we find in verses 8 and 9. This prayer that reflects the confidence and heart of Naomi for her two daughters-in-law. She prays that the Lord, this covenant-keeping God, this God who is dependable and faithful, she prays that the God of Israel would meet with these two daughters of hers and that he would demonstrate his kindness on them, this kindness which is the word chesed, the word for loyal, steadfast love of God. She believes that the love of God and the presence of God is not only evident in Judah, in Israel, but that presence and power of God and kindness of God can extend its way even into Moab and can can tenderly deal with her two daughters. Ruth, though, would stand her ground. Ruth has made a decision. While Orpah has decided to go back to her people and go back to her, her own God, Ruth will make a decision to stand her ground and to declare her allegiance to the people of Israel and to the God of Israel. So they make their way back. We find in these, this opening verse that the reason why Naomi is able to go back is because she, she's, she um, anchors her heart in the mercy of God. It is safe to cast yourself on the mercy of God, the mercy of the Lord. We're gonna see throughout our passage this morning this return that happens. We're gonna see twice in verse 19 and once in verse 22, they return back to Bethlehem. We mentioned the consequences that Naomi and her family experienced because of the strong hand of God in disciplining her family. And last week, we talked about the challenges of moving back into Bethlehem, this small rural village, this place where hiding and remaining anonymous would have been impossible for Naomi. And she would be walking back into that town without a husband, without her sons, with this new stranger by her side, and it would have been evident to everybody in the town that God's hand of discipline was upon them. So how was Naomi able to move all the way back to Bethlehem? Stop and consider. In Naomi's heart, all she needed to do was come back to the land of promise. All she needed to do was come back to Israel. And along her trip on the way from Moab to Bethlehem, she would have come through Jericho, she would have come through Jerusalem, and would have made her way to Bethlehem. She could have stopped at any point along the way, but she decides to come all the way back to Bethlehem. And in our next point, we're going we're gonna to see that it's because of a heart of repentance. It's a heart of returning all the way back to the starting point, which demonstrates another place of her faith in God. But she was able to do that because she could cast herself on the mercy of God. She could trust the mercy of God to carry her even if she was met by shame. Even though 
the judgment of God, the hand of God had been heavy upon her. She knew she could come back to Bethlehem because she could trust in the mercy of God. She knew God's heart for the widow and the stranger. A heart that had been echoed throughout the pages of the Mosaic law. Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 to 24 says this. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry out at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. Naomi understood that she could cast herself on the mercy of God because God's heart for widows and orphans and the poor and the stranger was clear in the pages of the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 to 18, we find, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. God could be faithful. God could be trusted. God's mercy was dependable mercy. She could cast herself on the mercy of God. And then she knew that there were rules written, standards written into the law for provision. We find in Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 to 22. When you reap your harvest in your fields and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be, next slide, for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. When God himself demonstrates his heart for the poor and the orphan and the widow in these terms, and we begin, and no, as, as Naomi did, as Naomi began to depend upon the mercy of God, she knew she could cast herself on God's mercy and that he would be faithful. She was willing to face the shame. She was willing to accept whatever stigma she might be stuck with for the rest of her life. She was willing to come clean about the conditions and challenges of her life. She knew she could trust God's mercy. Our tendency, though, is to cover up, if you're anything like me. Our tendency is to conceal. Our tendency is to hide. Our tendency is to put on a face so that people see what we want them to see. Naomi was willing to walk in and to embrace the shame of the discipline of God on her life as a reflection of her confidence in God to care for her. In the final days of Israel's or Judah's history before their captivity to Babylon, they were in some of the darkest days of their own history. The northern ten tribes by the time we get to the book of Jeremiah, the northern ten tribes had already been decimated, had already been conquered by Assyria. They'd been scattered. They'd been enslaved. They'd been captive. And now the land of Judah was virtually overthrown by Babylon. 
The people had rejected God, and now they're experiencing judgment in Jerusalem. Life was very, very hard in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah, as a prophet, was God's mouthpiece to those people in very difficult days. There was no food. There was no water. And the atrocities that took place, the horrors that happened in Jerusalem during those days are unspeakable. But in the midst of God's judgment, as the, as the, as the time of Judah's history is going to be drawing to a close, and they're, they're, they too will be taken into, into captivity, God speaks a promise to them in the midst of great judgment and great discipline, and we see the glimmer of God's hope that comes only through mercy, the mercy of God. And John read this passage to us at the beginning of our time together in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. When the days are darkest, when the shame and suffering and anguish of your life has come upon you because of the clear hand of God's discipline on your life, You think maybe all hope is lost, but then you remember the words of God to his people. Through the Lord's mercies, you are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every single morning. Great is your faithfulness. You can anchor your heart in the mercy of God. You can cast yourself, your life, on the mercy of God. He is faithful. He is dependable. Regardless of your history, regardless of your past, regardless of your failures, you can depend on the mercy of God and cast yourself on his mercy. He will show his mercy and faithfulness to you. She had learned, Naomi had learned, to count on the mercy of God. But it's also safe to trust in the forgiveness of God. It's safe to trust in the forgiveness of God. Again, all of these uh, concepts and truths are interwoven in our passage today. And we see this scattered through these, these next several verses from verse 19 to 22. I wanna draw your attention to verse 19 and verse 22 so you can see how this is working itself out. Again, it says in verse 19, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Now jumping down to verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. We touched on this already speaking about the significance of this turn and how throughout the scripture, returning, this word is often used not just for a change of direction or a change of circumstances, but it's often associated with repentance. This change of heart of turning from your, certain, your circumstances and turning to God, a heart that is committed to turning to God. They returned. And they returned all the way to Bethlehem so this restoration could be complete. That's why the narrator mentions this three times. 
And then he uses not Bethlehem only three times, he uses the word return three times. We read two of those in verse 22, and then halfway through verse 21, it says, the Lord has brought me back empty. That's the word shuv, that's the word return. At the heart of this, returning back to Judah is a heart that is returning back to God. Naomi's heart is fixed on coming back to God. This word return, which describes this activity of directional change, but, a, but also a, an activity of posture, of turning one's heart in repentance to God himself. I believe that's why the narrator takes such great efforts to repeat this word so many times for us. It is virtually a repeat of what we see in verse six that began this section in verse 6, it says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. And then verse 7, So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah, returning um, out of Moab and returning to the land of Judah. This bookends the this, this significance of this return that's happening. It draws attention to the beginning and the close, uh, this uh, section that is dealt with return, so that there are 12 times in these 15 verses where the narrator uses this word, return. It becomes the setup for everything good in this book of Ruth. Everything that we will find from this point on that is good for Ruth and Naomi is set up and happens because of the foundation that was laid of turning to God, repentance to God. Spiritual tragedy can only be remedied one way, through spiritual renewal. It only comes through repentance. It only comes through a change of heart. Naomi had come to terms with her situation. We see that in verse 13. She says, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. But rather than run from God, she turns to God. She admits the significance of the anguish that she feels. It doesn't push her away, but draws her in. And this is exactly what the prodigal does, by the way. When he comes to the end of himself, he arises and returns. And Naomi comes to her senses. She arises and returns. The decisions that we make when life is hard, when we come to the place of recognizing the anguish and the difficulties and the challenges that we're experiencing, and we, we see them as coming from God, the posture of our heart to recognize what is really at stake in God trying to draw us in to deeper faith in him and finding him as the source of forgiveness, will our heart turn to God when life is hard? In Hebrews chapter 12, verses five to eight, this is how we're instructed to respond. It says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have, have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, 
in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you are a follower of God, and you have willfully sinned against God and have experienced the disciplining punishment of God, rejoice. That is a gift of God to you to confirm your status as son or daughter of the king. It is a gift. And when we come to a place of recognizing where we stand in terms of our sin, that God is disciplining uh, disciplining us for our sinning against him, our rebellion against him, then what do we do? Well, 1 John 1.9 makes that clear. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. The slate is wiped clean. The credit goes to Jesus himself who paid the price for sin on the cross for you and for me, for anyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus has paid it all. He's paid the price. It is safe to cast yourself on the mercy of God. It is safe to trust in the forgiveness of God. And finally, it is safe to depend on the faithfulness of God. It's safe to depend on the faithfulness of God. We begin to see this Again, as we turn to verses 19 and 20. And we see now Naomi and Ruth making their way into this town. It says, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? This is important for us to understand. As we move our way into this section, it's important for us to recognize that repentance is not just for you. The repentance is for everyone who you are in fellowship with, who you are in community with. Repentance is God's way to restore relationship back to him, but also relationship back to the people you've offended. Repentance will benefit Naomi, but her willingness to come all the way back to Bethlehem allows this small town to experience the benefits of repentance too. True and full repentance puts God's faithfulness on display. True and full repentance allows the entire community to participate in forgiveness. True and full repentance is meant to lead to reconciliation, restored relationship with those relationships that have been broken. Without full repentance, the picture of a changed heart goes unnoticed. Without full repentance, the hand of God in faithfully dealing with sin goes unobserved. Without full repentance, the beauty of restored relationship is unseen. And without full repentance, the glory of God in bringing sinners back to himself remains concealed. Don't rob the community of faith of the joy of seeing the picture of full repentance. Repentance isn't just for you. 
Repentance is meant to point to the wonder of a God who forgives, who's full of mercy, who's dependable. You can trust him. We see this town is stirred. This town is stirred. Naomi walks into town with Ruth, and this word for stirred is to shake or to be surprised. It's to, to move or to cause a great noise. It's a, it's a word in the Hebrew that's onomatopoeia, which essentially is a, a word that sounds like the sound that it makes. So it's this word for hum, this buzz that's taking place in the village, this, this word that's traveling, a, a buzz among the people as the conversation about Ruth is happening. And I don't think that Naomi ever imagined the response that she would get walking into town. Because I think what we find here is a town that is genuinely interested in Naomi. Maybe even sympathizing with her. They come to her. They don't walk away. They don't keep her at a distance. They don't just talk and gossip about her, but they come close. They don't avoid her. That's a good sign. And there are some pretty obvious differences about Naomi. She has no husband. She has no sons. She has this new daughter-in-law. Probably the years of suffering and anguish have, have wrapped themselves around her, her visage, her face. The, those years have been painful. They've been difficult. They're showing up. They're showing through these painful, difficult years. And Naomi responds. She says in verse 20, Do not call me Naomi, which is pleasant, means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Notice that Naomi doesn't conceal her pain. The anguish, the suffering, she's not making excuses, she's not uh, uh, setting it aside, and she makes four statements about God in, in her response to them. Four statements about God that point to God four times. In verse 20, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Verse 21, I went out full and the Lord has brought me home empty. Verse 21, the Lord has testified against me. In verse 21, the Almighty has afflicted me. Our family is not without fault. We have been found guilty. We are experiencing the devastating consequences of our sin. So don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Bitter, which is this word for anguish and distress, this personal suffering. Naomi's attitude has often been the subject of commentators. What is going on here in Naomi's response? Is this appropriate? Is this the right way to respond uh, to our suffering? Call me Mara, she says. There are two questions I want to address very briefly. First, was it right for Naomi to express her pain? And second, was Naomi actually bitter? Of course, we can't be definitive. We can't know for sure because the narrator doesn't tell us. But I think there are good clues in the text that help us answer this question. First, was Naomi, uh, was it right for Naomi to express her pain? And of course, as we know through the scripture, as we know, as, as John introduced to us, lament from Psalm 42 this morning, 
It is appropriate, it is right, it is godly for us to express our emotion to God. It is right for us to to respond in the way that God has designed us to respond in terms of coming to terms with how we feel. God has given us emotion. Psalm 22, one and four, the psalmist says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. Do you see and hear and feel the raw emotion that's coming through in the words of the psalmist? It was right for him to express emotion as long as that emotion pointed him to God, as long as that emotion helped him to find the answers in God. Christ himself expressed emotion. Jesus wept with Mary. Jesus also wept over the city of Jerusalem. Jesus in the garden sweat drops of blood in the intense yearning and groaning with the Father. Emotion is a tool to lead us to God, to acknowledge our feelings, to unburden that emotion, to confess the areas that that emotion is out of step with God, to trust him for comfort and support, to depend upon him, to look to him for vindication, preservation, provision, protection, and forgiveness. The writer of the Hebrews says as much. It is right for us to feel emotion. Hebrews 12, 11 says this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But rather, but, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Painful experiences are meant to lead you to God. So now we need to ask ourselves a second question. Emotion is right, but what about, what about Naomi? Was she bitter? Does this come out of a heart? Does this reflect the heart of bitterness or just candid clarity about her situation? We find from the scripture a number of indications of what bitterness leads to. What does bitterness look like? In Acts chapter 8, verse, verse 23, we see that bitterness leads to selfishness. This is Peter and John speaking to Simon uh, in Samaria where they, they confront him and say, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness, Simon, and bound by iniquity. It's leading to selfishness. You want something that doesn't belong to you, Simon. That's coming from a bitter heart. In Ephesians chapter 4, 31 and 32, we see that bitterness leads to unforgiveness. Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If you hang on to bitterness, you cannot forgive. If you hang on to bitterness, you cannot be tender to others. Bitterness leads to unforgiveness, to anger, It also leads to a lack of peace and holiness. We find in Hebrews 12, 14, and 15. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Don't allow your bitterness to lead to disunity. Don't allow it to lead to fracture among 
God's people. And finally, it leads to self-seeking and confusion in James chapter 3, 14 to 16. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and spiritual demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So was Naomi bitter? I don't believe she was. I think we see this heart of compassion for her daughters-in-law. I see this commitment to faith in speaking about Yahweh and speaking about the Almighty and addressing him and praying for her daughters-in-law. This emotion that she experiences and demonstrates has pushed her into a deeper relationship with God, and that is what emotion is meant to do. So don't cover up your emotion. Don't push it away, but give it to God. Give vent to your emotion to God. He is big enough to hear it. He's big enough to carry it. He's big enough to deal with it. It is meant to push you and drive you into greater faith in him because he is stronger and greater. Use your emotion as an instrument of faith. In fear, grow in your confidence. In frustration, learn to depend on his sovereignty. In your pain, find his comfort. In your anger, discover his rest. In your isolation, you can experience God's friendship. In your weakness, you can depend on God's strength. In your um, rejection, you can know God's loyalty. In your feelings of shame, you can run to his forgiveness. Use your emotion to drive you to deeper faith and confidence into God. And finally and briefly, we find that Naomi is able to do all of this because of her confidence in God as almighty. She uses this word El Shaddai, the Shaddai or almighty two times in her, uh, in her um, response to these townspeople. This word for Shaddai is the word for Almighty. It's the, it's the title of the true God that comes with power and sovereignty who rules over all, over this council of, of angelic beings, that God is supreme. God is above all. You might say, God is king. And that is what champ, has championed uh, Ruth's, or Naomi's heart to do what is right. What Elimelech, her husband, would not do in refusing to acknowledge God as king. Naomi has come to a place of recognizing there is no safer place than trusting Shaddai, the king, the God who is sovereign. <laughs> so you can cast yourself on the mercy of God. You can learn to depend on his forgiveness and you can find that he is faithful. He is a faithful God. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you this morning. Thank you that the stories in the Bible are, are of real people. Real people who experience real problems. Real people who, like us, make really bad decisions. But real people who, when we see their example of repentance and authentic confession of their situation, this raw emotion that we, we see in them. We can identify with those things. 
But help us also to realize, Lord, there is only one way for us to enjoy the real satisfaction that comes from you, and that is to have a heart that is postured in full repentance, in full faith of casting ourselves completely on the mercy of God as the only one who is dependable. May we not miss, Lord, the beauty of repentance, not just for us, but the beauty of that repentance that is right and good and healthy for everybody with whom we're in community. May we not run and hide. May we not remain anonymous. May we allow the work of God in our life to be seen, the good things and the bad things, so the glory of God can be put on display. God, we thank you for this story today and all that we've learned. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.